Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. I don't have enough room. Here we go. Watch out. Good to see you all. So glad you're here. Welcome if you're worshiping with us online. Um, If you haven't made plans to yet, you are welcome to stay after lunch. Even if you're not here right now, if you're watching live at home, you have time to make it back up. 11.15, 11.30, we're going to have cookout on the front lawn. There's a bounce house coming, an egg hunt, a balloon twister, Collide coffee trailer, which... Juan even has two specialty drinks made just for us for Palm Sunday. Isn't that cool? So y'all can buy yourselves a latte after. I think um, one's called Rev It Up, which is pretty fun. And another one's a fun, like, palm caramel espresso, just delightful thing. Gluttony was last week. Don't worry. (laughs) So we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, so before we get started, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Revolution Kids. So glad you guys are here. Thanks for helping us in worship this morning. Singing Hosanna. All right. So as you as, clearly as we know, today is Palm Sunday, uh, this important day in the life of the church universal in which we remember the event of Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the reception that he had there begins our Holy Week, where we will will follow sort of Jesus's last week or final days on his journey to the cross. And this is an important mark, sort of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, beginning our Holy Week. Uh, So we're going to continue on this journey throughout the rest of the week. I hope um, in addition to staying for lunch this Sunday, you're making plans to celebrate with us this week at our special worship services. And we're going to have our Monday Thursday service um, on Thursday at 6 p.m. Um, and we're also we're still collecting um, items to go into hygiene kits that we will be making during that service as a point of worship um, for our unhoused neighbors. And then also on Good Friday we'll have a, a service of worship and tenebrae, um, distinguishing candles and darkness at 6 p.m. And then Easter Sunday, sunrise is a little bit earlier this year, but that's okay. I'm excited for it. We're going to be out in the front parking lot, weather permitting, at 7 a.m. If you'd like to join us for a short 30, 40-minute sunrise service, and then we'll have our normal worship here uh, at 10 a.m. with communion as well. So I hope you're making plans. Excited to mark this journey for us as a community of faith as we follow Jesus to, yes, the cross, but also to the empty tomb, to the resurrection. Today, he is one step closer uh, to that point. He has entered Jerusalem closer and closer uh, to the cross. Jesus enters the city triumphantly celebrated uh, as a king who is coming to bring peace. But of course, as we know, he enters in unexpected ways, and he will bring peace in very unexpected ways as well. Those who gather, those who welcome, those who receive him don't yet even realize what will come to pass. And of course, as a church, we too have been on a little journey through this season of Lent, not necessarily as we followed Jesus all the way to this point, but in um, a a review of the historic seven deadly sins called seven vices. And I've invited you into this journey with with me, with us as a church, uh, through practices of self-examination to be very intentional and specific about our own preparation during the season of Lent 
And it's a preparation for holiness, for sanctification, to become more like Christ. Right? Christ goes on this journey to the cross and empty grave, but also his invitation to join him there uh, means that we also have to take up our own crosses. We also have to surrender um, to things that aren't like Christ. We have to name and, and confess and repent of our sinful nature, the ways that we are prone to sinfulness, our, our habits, our hang-ups, those things that often keep us from pursuing Christ and chasing after him with all that we have in this life. These seven have offered us sort of a framework to understand maybe ways that we need to sift through and name, repent, and surrender so that we can freely and joyfully follow after Christ with all that we have. So we've looked at those vices like pride and wrath, sloth, greed, last week, gluttony and lust. And last but certainly not least, today we're going to look at envy. The last one is envy. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. Daryl showed it for us. The seven deadly sins according to the digital world. I thought that was pretty clever. Sort of a different app for all of the, just like a representation. Definitely not the only way uh, that we might experience the seven deadly sins today. But if you take a look, it's um, envy that you often find on Facebook. I heard this go off, so I'm just going to never have this out here. I wonder if you can think, when was the last time that you felt really, really envious? When's the last time you felt really jealous of someone? You don't have to shout it out. You're looking, you're looking at me back like, oh, she want me to say something? Chances are, it might have been when you were scrolling through Facebook. Maybe even, who knows, this week when most of Jefferson County was on spring break. I saw you guys, you know, at the beach, in that Disney World, staying on that beachfront house, your kids in matching, you know, swimming suits. I was like, man, that's cool. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> Not mad at all as I sit here. Did y'all know it snowed yesterday? <laughs> all you all with your suntan, a little sunburnt. I don't feel bad for you if you got sunburnt. Did you know it snowed yesterday? I'm not jealous at all. Facebook's a good place to compare, to feel, I don't know, sad about your lot in life, all the things you could have. I really am glad you guys had a good vacation. I know some of you had trouble getting home, all those flight cancellations, so I'm glad you're here. That is genuine. In our digital world, especially on social media and Facebook and Instagram, when we can present a perfectly curated life, living our best selves, that's what we show to the world most of the time, right? Best dressed, uh, most successful, announcing, you know, the greatest successes in life on those platforms. It's easy to feel envy, it's Joseph Epstein, though, a, a philosopher in his uh, book on envy, who says, of all the deadly sins, envy is no fun at all. <laughs> some of you might have mentioned how some of the other vices were the more fun ones. This one is not fun at all. I have never met anyone who enjoys feeling envy, who enjoys feeling envious. You might know the expression to be green with envy. 
Um, Palm Sunday, I thought, why not? Green envy, we're going to go with it. To be green with envy, what does that mean other than to feel sick? A sickness, to, to feel sick with jealousy, because it's not just that we desire things that our neighbor has, but it's the experience, the status, and the, the whole life that those things might represent. And in focusing on what other people have that we desire, those things and experiences and status, we also become very, very aware of what we lack. It's a dwelling on the things that we lack that we actually do want in this life. Thomas Aquinas said, envy is a special sort of sorrow over another person's goods. Envy is wishing your life was different than it was. Grieving over what you don't have, that's a form of sorrow, of sadness. No one likes to feel this way. Envy is no fun at all. Unchecked, this sadness and grief can easily grow into anger, resentment, rivalry, even hate. Even hate. One of the few... uh, one of all the vices, this one's no fun at all. And in fact, it's the only one, you could maybe argue that, but the only one that has a direct counterpart in the Ten Commandments. Second to last, but Exodus 20:17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. Greed. Jealousy, covetedness, envy. We often use these words interchangeably, and they they are very much all related, and they grow into one another. But to covet is actually just even a little bit different than envy. Both envy and covetedness focus on, on something desirable that you want that belongs to another, that we ourselves lack. They both focus on that. The greedy one might say, um, I want something that my neighbor has, but I want, I want that as well, or I want more of that. It's the envious one who says, no, I want that very same thing. I want that one that you have, and I'd actually prefer, Daryl, if you don't have it at all. Yeah, like that coffee, or I don't know. But to be greedy is saying, oh, I want that too. I want that too. To be sort of greedy in our jealousy is just to say, I want more, and I want that too as well. But to be envious is to say, no, I want that exact one. I want that one. This is the life of parenting toddlers. When of all of the, all of the toys in the whole entire house, when the three-year-old has the whole reign to play with whatever he wants, it's when the baby picks up something that hasn't been played with that suddenly the toddler decides, I want that one right there irregardless of the fact that we've got about 150 Hot Wheels cars that would all do the same exact thing. No, no, no. Replacement is not good enough. I want that one that the baby has right now. That's envy. To want what the other person has exactly, and honestly, it would be best if they didn't have it at all. Envy is the vice underneath that takes jealousy a step further, not just to covet But the envious person is concerned with the rival's status or good standing as a result of having that object. It's to be concerned about the pecking order of things, how you stack up in status and in respect and worthiness compared to your neighbors. 
I, Dad, I should have prepared a better, like, car illustration of, like, so you might be envious of someone else's car, but my, he's the car guy, I'm not. But it'd be like you might envy your neighbor's car, but not because you want one just like it, but you want that personal sort of respect and admiration that comes with having the nice, fancy car when someone pulls up on the street corner. Do you feel the difference? Envy is the vice underneath it. In envy, we eye the internal qualities of another person, qualities that give a person worth and honor, standing, or status. If the envious do desire an external thing, it is because that object symbolizes or signifies its owner's high position or greatness. It's not just to be envious in what they have, the things that they do, but it's their whole lot in life who they are, their perceived greatness compared to you. All of that that seems better than or greater than the lot that you have in life. So it's not just a desire of, man, it's snowing. I really wish I was at the beach today. But maybe an example would be, this is is actually not personal, but to take it a step farther would be, I I desire to have a kind of life that allows me the luxury or the affordability to go and to have a vacation like that, right? Envy. The earliest example that we can find in Scripture, Willimon says, where two or more are gathered together, their envy is as well. (laughs) The earliest we can think is Genesis 4, verses 1 through 10, the story of Cain and Abel. And it begins with, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And that's when envy begins. (laughs) Two brothers, when they're not one, but now two. Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Envy over his brother's lot in life, over his reception of the offering to the Lord, perceived to be greater love than what Cain himself had received. You might think this is an extreme example, but there are two things that sort of envy requires, that sort of envy relies on. The first is envy relies on the sin of comparison. The sin of comparison. And this isn't just to compare people like, way far beyond, you know, that we don't even really know, or sort of like celebrity millionaire status. No, it breeds in proximity. Envy relies on the sin of comparison, and it breeds in proximity. Someone close to you, similar to you, only better. Like a brother, 
like a family member, like a coworker, like a colleague. Another philosopher says, rarely do we envy those who are much, much greater than ourselves. It's not that a, a writer who is trying to write for a living and, and that's their desire and what they do, they don't become envious of someone who goes out and wins an Olympic medal in a 5,000 meter run. Right? It's not that when they can barely finish a 5K road race. A rider isn't envious of an Olympic runner. But they are envious of the colleague who gets a rave review on her new novel while their work goes unpublished, unfinished, and unnoticed. Right? It's, that's, that's the tougher one. It's in proximity. It's not comparing our successes to Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, but to our sister, to our friends, to the neighbor next door. It's that pool to keep up with the Joneses. Ones that would be close enough to be seen as our rival. I love this. You might have heard it said, in America, contentment is making $10 a month more than your brother-in-law. It's like, yeah, that's, yeah. Making $10 more, $10, maybe even a week, $10 a month more than your brother-in-law. Envy makes even our good friends into our competition, our enemies, at least in our own minds, if I didn't have a neighbor, someone whom I can observe in proximity and lay alongside my life, I would have no object of envy. It relies on the sin of comparison. And the second is that envy can easily escalate. Envy, this is from Rebecca DeYoung, envy generally emerges when another's superiority seems to threaten or lessen our own excellence and where that comparison leaves us feeling inferior. If those areas encroach closely on our sense of who we are and why we are valued, evil's bitter gall can turn to pure venom. We might not think to the level the extreme example of Cain and Abel, of killing a brother out of jealousy and envy and anger, but those feelings can grow over time, it can turn to that resentment and to that malice, even to hatred. And we might not think, hey, but at least there's no murder. But I'm pretty sure as we remember, Jesus had something to say about those whom we harbor hate and resentment for in our hearts. Do we not look like Cain at some times in our lives? Faces fallen, sad at our lot in life, angry, resentful, maybe even violent. So this grows in kind of a, a, another level of this vice of envy. There's a sibling underneath it. Do you all know this word? Have you heard it? Schadenfreude? Oh, it's a sibling of envy. It's that perverse delight in the failures and misfortunes of others. You become so enraged, so consumed with envy, that then you delight in your rival's demise. Envy not only prevents us from rejoicing in the achievements of others, but it leads us to rejoice in their failures, rejoicing in the failures of others. Lord forbid, maybe we felt that at a point. So consumed in envy when something bad happens to our neighbor who we perceive believes that they are better than us, they are superior to us, they've made us feel small. Not by any of their own doing, but often because of the insecurity in our own hearts. How often have we been tempted to rejoice when they finally experience, I don't know, something difficult? Ha. 
They deserved it. They had it coming. Daryl's example, <laughs> just what like he said, not me. He said, like when Duke lost. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Now we're meddling, that's right. We can't bear the sight of someone else rejoicing or being happy, and so we cheer against our rivals. We cheer for them to lose. Deep, deep resentment. Why is this? As I just said, because it gets to the heart of our own sense of worthiness. These feelings of envy, of rivalry, of competition, of rejoicing in another's demise, it reveals our own insecurity because it's getting to the heart of our own worthiness. If we feel sad about our lot in life and discontent and inadequate, then we're also closely feeling not worthy of love and acceptance and acclaim. Cain, feeling insecure about his status before God compared to his brother, wondered why God would accept his brother's offering and not his, may have had nothing to do with him. As God says, why are you sad? Don't you know that if you also do good and you bring it to me, you know, you need to be mindful of your own sinfulness, God says. But the sin was in the comparison. He defeated himself before he even began. And that left him feeling insecure, scared, questioning his own worth and status, and made him jealous. Envy makes us green. It makes us sick with envy. Another way it does is Aquinas says, hatred of our neighbor is therefore also hatred of God. We cannot love our neighbor, or we sorry, we cannot love God and say that we hate our neighbor. Hatred of neighbor is also hatred of God. To envy our neighbor's goods is not only to despise ourselves. This is Will Willimon in his book on the seven sins. But it's also to despise God. To regard our lives as diminished in comparison with our neighbor's life is to despise the God who gave us our lives as they are. It is to say that God made a mistake in the making us as we are and giving us gifts that we have been given and by implication in making our neighbor and giving our neighbors the gifts that they have been given. In envy, we can neither love God nor love our neighbor well. So what's the remedy? How can we escape this sort of thought pattern of these sort of feelings that bubble up that none of us enjoy? We know they're not good, but often we defeat ourselves before we even start because of the sin of comparison. So what's the remedy? To escape from this vice, we must find a completely different foundation for our self-worth. That's it. Our self-worth is not found in worldly success, status, acclaim that we might receive from others, not in besting our neighbor or feeling superior, because we know that security is fleeting at best. As soon as we acquire one thing that makes us feel good and, and, and secure and superior, it'll quickly fade. And it's. Do you see how this is all related to pretty much all of the sins that we've talked about? The vices of greed of needing more and more to feel secure, of feeling worthy of love and acclaim. It's also tightly connected to pride and vainglory, of needing that affirmation from others, of needing that praise, of needing that celebration. 
And envy, that's what we're craving, maybe even lustful for, a feeling superior, a feeling the best, because then that means we are worthy. I appreciate that pride is the root of all of these, but we're bookended now with envy that also summarizes them in a very specific way. To best this vice, to escape from it, we must find a completely different foundation for our self-worth. To overcome envy, we need to work from a new vision of who we are as unconditionally beloved children of God. That's the first step. God loves us already without any qualifications, not because of our moral worthiness, our attractiveness, our achievements, but simply because you are God's own. Just a few weeks ago, in talking about love and talking about how we can love our neighbors even when we don't like them, maybe it's not because they themselves are annoying or they've harmed you. Maybe you don't like them just because, man, you can, you're kind of envious of their life at times. You're kind of jealous of them at times. So how can we love that person? Well, sure, the flashing yellow light by remembering they too are created in the image of God. But first, remember that for you as well. The foundation to escape this vice is remembering your own sense of worthiness does not come from anything that you can acquire, anything that you can achieve, but simply because you are. You are created in the image of God. You are a beloved child of God. You are loved. Our world isn't set up for that truth, but it's one that we must proclaim and remind one another of every time we gather here. It's the love that I have for my children before they've even done anything for themselves. Not one thing. I love them because they are them, because they are mine, because they were also formed in their mother's womb. God loves you already without any qualification, not because of anything you've done. And so here's a few questions as we've done in the past, the past couple weeks, to, to reflect in this final week of Lent, of kind of doing that gut check as we go. Questions for self-reflection. Do I envy or experience jealousy regarding the abilities, the talents, the ideas, the good looks, the intelligence, the clothes, the possessions, the money from friends or family of others? Am I saddened or frustrated by the successes of others? So first just ask, am I feeling this way? And then ask maybe why. What does this reveal to me about what I value in myself? And maybe lastly, what, does, what am I saying to what God has given me? Do you know that you have been free, freely and joyfully and beautifully made? Do you know that you are a child of God? We might say that, our head might know it, but does your heart know it throughout the week as you go? Throughout the rest of this week, we will follow Jesus as he approaches the cross, and by the end of the week, those shouts of Hosanna, waving palm branches, as people, as he rode the colt, as people laid out their jackets, as Jesus entered triumphantly into the city, those those shouts of Hosanna, which is God save us. Those shouts from the crowd will very quickly by the end of the week turn into crucify him. Jesus will be betrayed by his followers, abandoned by most of his friends. 
He will be handed over to the religious leaders and Roman soldiers. He will be beaten, mocked, and shamed. In the next couple of weeks, the, in the next week, the full sin of humanity will be on display. Throughout the passion narrative, we can see the vices of pride, of greed, wrath, sloth, and envy. It's actually right after Jesus enters, not in, in the Gospel of Luke, not too many chapters after he enters triumphantly. Jesus gathers with his friends to celebrate the Passover. He celebrates the Last Supper. And the very next section, do you know what happens? Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. God bless these disciples. God bless them. They've been, bless their hearts, they've been with him all this time. They went and got that colt. The Lord requires it. I'm going to say that. I told some people this morning, the Lord needs it. If I, you know, if something needs to be done around here, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs this colt. That's a joke. I'm not going to do that. They went, they dutifully went, they prepared the way. They've been with them this far. They've asked all their questions days before. Like the third time, it says Jesus warned them what was going to come to pass. And still, they were bent on this earthly kingdom that the Messiah would restore to make them victorious over the Romans once and for all. Can you see these vices of envy? They want to best the Romans. They want to be on top. They want to be in control because they have been oppressed and pushed out for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even though they followed this rabbi, this teacher who washed their feet just days prior, who told them that the greatest among them would be the servant of all. I wonder if that moment when they see him triumphantly enter in Jerusalem, they've gotten close to the belly of the beast and the power of all that is to be in both the religious and political world, right there in Jerusalem. I wonder if they weren't sort of tempted to say, this is it, Jesus, do it. This is our chance. We want to win. A dispute also arose among them. Which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest? When you come into your kingdom, Lord, which of us will sit on your left hand and on your right hand? We can see it's social proximity, it's rivalry, it's envy and all of the others as well. The remedy for this vice sets us up perfectly for Holy Week because we must remember who we are and whose we are as we are led directly to the cross. As we follow Jesus throughout the rest of this week, as we sympathize with the disciples, because I'm just like them. It's the words of Isaiah 43 that I hope will help us frame and to remember as we approach the cross that now thus says the Lord he who created you O Jacob he who formed you O Israel fear not for I have redeemed you I have called you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, 
Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. In all of the moments when we too are just like the disciples, thirsty and craving for more power, for more security, for more status, for more acclaim, in all of our moments of vainglory and pride, when we seek to live for ourselves, when we're envious of our neighbor's lot in life, it's this word from Isaiah that I hope can ground us again, and also the example of Jesus Christ, who says, if you shall come after me, it will be to take up your own cross and follow. That's the way to victory. That's the way to true security and peace and freedom in the kingdom of God, not through anything that we can grasp to comfort ourselves here, but through surrendering. And that's the movement we've done every, every week of this series. As we've explored one of these vices, I hope identified the sin, surrendered it to say, Lord, I'm not going to choose that today, or at least I'm going to try hard not to. I'm not going to rely on my own strength. I'm not going to seek the glory of others. But you, O oh Lord, do I desire to serve. This morning, may we cry, Hosanna, Lord, save us, and mean it. Because if you're like me, there have been certain weeks of this series that have been harder than others, ones that have surprised me, ones that I wish that I could have just skipped over, ones that just got way too personal. You know, as I was reading along, I thought I wasn't prepared to struggle with that one. Maybe it's been brutal for you some weeks as well. But I hope throughout the whole thing you've heard that message of grace and of hope and of promise and of redemption, that you have been called by name, that you are God's, you are loved, that Christ has and is redeeming you. And above all, we are in dire need of the grace of Jesus Christ. So may we call out Hosanna this morning and mean it. God, save us. God, help us that we may choose to walk after your path and your kingdom, and not our own making. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for who you are. For how you've called us by name. For how you've claimed us. For how we are loved just for being us, and not because of anything we could say or do or achieve or acquire. God, thank you that even while we were still sinners, you loved us. And you made a way for us to be redeemed back to you. May you give us the courage that we need to say no to the passions and desires and vices and hang-ups that keep us from fully following you in all that we do. May you give us the courage as we hear the passion narrative again this week to pick up our own crosses to surrender the lives that we thought we might have to choose the life abundant that you have called us to. And may we remember that to follow you, Lord, means to follow you to death. That we must die to ourselves and our own sense of pride so that we can be raised again with you in glory. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray, would you guide us this week in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. As we begin communion this morning, I want to invite you just into a moment of confession. 
And then there's a collect here. It's, it's actually a, a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that is often used at Ash Wednesday, but I think, I think it's a good summary for the prayer that we have in this Easter season as well. So would you join me now as we pray this prayer together? Almighty and eternal God, you hate nothing you have made and you forgive the sins of those who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts that we may truly repent of our sins, acknowledge our wretchedness, and obtain perfect forgiveness from you, the God of all mercy. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.